Good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, I want to say a few things before we begin our lesson. Number one, I, I want to thank everyone for all their hard work. Uh, this is the exciting time of this work for me. Uh, there's a lot of energy and excitement. There's been a lot of work and preparation for this. Uh, what y'all do here is a great blessing. I hope that uh, ultimately that we please God, uh, that His Word is able to reach the hearts that it needs to reach. Uh, and I'm glad and grateful to be a part of that. And so thank you for the invitation to be here. And I'm looking forward to a good week, Lord willing. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we want to welcome you. We hope that you find yourself blessed today. Uh, our hope is that you're edified by the sermons. And I want to add to that, I hope that you're challenged by the sermons. Because that's when God's Word really blesses us is is when we, with a humble and a meek heart, will look into that word and we'll, we'll reflect on our own life, our own heart, our own mind, and we will make the changes that God has asked us to make. And that's a challenge. It challenges us. And so this morning, we're going to have a very challenging lesson. We're going to talk about Mary and Martha. That may not seem like a very challenging topic. Um, you know, there's probably been countless sermons on Mary and Martha and I want to first read the story. It's only about five verses. And then we're going to examine this story this morning uh, as we look at God's Word. Reading from Luke chapter 10, I will have the scriptures on the screen for your convenience. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. It says, Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet, and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. You know, I find this story remarkable in many ways. Out of all of the interactions that Jesus had in his three-and-a-half-year ministry, numerous people that he visited with, interactions and conversations that are not recorded for us, this particular story about two sisters and what happened in their home that day is immortalized for us in the Scriptures in these five verses. And that's remarkable. And that tells me something. There's something important that God wanted us to learn and understand from this story, and that's why he inspired Luke to record this particular event about these two sisters. Now, sometimes we go and we look at this story, and we've got some different lenses that we look at this story through, and I want to talk about those for a moment. Number one, sometimes we look at Martha as though she's a villain. She's like the villain, the, the antagonist, if you will, of this story, where Mary is the hero. And I don't want us to look at it that way. Let's not think that we have such a, a great amount of wisdom and discernment that we can tell what kind of person she was from this one story. So let's be careful. We're going to criticize Martha this morning only because the Lord corrected her and look at some things that I believe were worthy of criticism. But she's not the villain. She's not the villain. And I want to also say this story is not for women. It's about two women, but this is not about the kitchen. We'll talk about some things regarding hospitality this morning, but, but it's not about the kitchen. Guys, don't check out. This, this is a story that we all learn from this morning. It's more than a story of two sisters. It's a story about two hearts 
two desires, and two perspectives. And it's an impactful story if we'll look at it and examine it. So I want to start by just looking at some of Martha's good qualities. Her good qualities. Because we're going to criticize her, but I want to look at her good qualities. And I want you to notice, first off, as Luke writes this, he records that Martha welcomed Jesus into her home. This is her house. She's the mistress of the home. And I suppose you can maybe make some assumptions that perhaps Mary and, and Lazarus, her brother, live with her. What I do know, this is her house. She is a woman of hospitality. And that's a commendable thing. And every one of us as, as people of God, if you're a child of God, I want you to know the Lord wants you to be like Martha in that way. He wants everyone to be hospitable. Notice Romans 12, 13 says, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. And that word given to, two words there, means to pursue something. And I ask you today, as a child of God, do you pursue hospitality in your life? And that can be a challenge. You know why? Because we have been conditioned in our society to believe that our homes are our fortress. This is our safe place. This is where I go in and I lock the world outside. But I'm going to tell you, God's will for our life is that we use our home as a means of being hospitable, not only to his people, but to others to bless their life. To pursue opportunities to be hospitable. I want you to also notice that Martha was doing much serving. We're going to talk about the distracted part of this in a moment. But I want you to notice she was a servant. Much serving. She recognized if people are in my home, I'm going to serve them. And she's doing much serving. And I want you to know that is great. That is great. And sometimes we don't think that's great. But see, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus called them to himself and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. That is, that they take control over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, listen, let him be your servant. And I want to ask you, do you think that people that serve you are great? My wife and I ran a restaurant for several years. Her family ran a restaurant for over 60 years. And I will tell you, if you want to learn about people, go run a restaurant. You'll learn a lot about people. And I'll tell you one thing that you learn about people. People are very entitled. We're very spoiled. And a lot of times people don't look as, at those who serve them as being great. They come in there and they kind of got this haughty attitude, you know. Now it's my time to come sit down at the table and you are my slave for the next whatever time that you're in there. And, and sometimes we, we treat people awful. We treat them. We make sure they know that they're our servant. And I want you to know that Jesus says servants are great. And we ought to treat them with dignity and honor and respect. There's people who try to take control and lord over people. He says that's not greatness. Greatness is done through service. And I hope that we as God's people treat servants with dignity and honor and respect. And I'm going to tell you why. Because the toughest day at our restaurant was Sunday lunch when the church crowd came in. They were the rudest people, the most entitled people, and they were the worst tippers. And I just want to say, as God's people, we've got to do better. We've got to do better. Because if we truly believe this, we will serve, and we will appreciate those who do serve. Martha was a servant. That was the kind of heart she had. So, 
I guess the question is, if hospitality and service are such highly exalted virtues, why did the Lord correct her? It wasn't because she was serving or because she was being hospitable. But as we see in the text, Martha was distracted. And I want you to think about this. Being distracted indicates you're distracted from something. She's distracted. And I, I want to get the scene. I'm going to try to paint a mental picture here. And, and just so you know, I don't know how their house was set up. But I'm just going to paint a picture so we can kind of get the scene. Imagine that there's this crowd of people, and I don't know how many people, but Jesus is there, Mary's there, and perhaps some of his disciples are sitting in the living room. I don't know if they had a living room. But Jesus is teaching, and here's Mary, and she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha's going to the kitchen. I don't know if she had a kitchen, but she's serving them. So let's say she goes to the kitchen, she comes back, and she's handing stuff out. And guess what she's looking at the whole time? Mary. Lazy Mary. Sitting on the floor while I'm working, while I'm serving, and I'm telling you, she's distracted. Her mind, her heart, her attention is not on the Lord. It's on Mary. Where's Mary's attention? Her full attention is on Jesus Christ. Martha is distracted. From what? The Son of God is in your home. He's pouring out the words of life. And what are you doing? You're mad at her. You're mad at your sister. You ever felt that way? I have. You're doing all the work and somebody else is sitting down. We had that stuff happen on the job site sometimes. That is frustrating. That's not what's going on here though. Not with Mary anyways. Martha feels that way. But I want you to notice that because of her frustration with her sister, that also made her frustrated with the Lord. And she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. I'll tell you, you know you've got the wrong attitude when you start telling God what to do. And questioning whether or not God cares. Do you care? Tell her to help me. See, she was being hospitable. She was serving, but the problem is what the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4 is be hospitable to one another, but notice, without grumbling. Whew. And that could be hard. You know why? You ever invite someone else's kids to your house? You know, we don't just think of our homes as our fortresses. We also think them... Think of them as a display case for all of our nice things. And so kids will come in and they'll touch stuff. And, and I'll tell you, if you get too overwhelmed by that, you'll never have people in your home again. My wife's got a lot of stuff. She'd be upset about this, but she's got a lot of stuff. Um, I call it junk. Some people call it treasures. But she can turn junk into something that looks really nice. And there's stuff everywhere, and she's trying to declutter right now and remove some of that stuff. But people come over to our house. We have kids in the house all the time. I mean, little kids, you know, five, six, three, ten, twelve sometimes. <laughs> Grabbing stuff, touching stuff, and their parents foam around the whole time going, Oh, don't touch that, don't touch that. And my wife tells them, she says, Look, I'm not trying to tell you what to do as a parent. They're your child, but if you're worried they're going to break something, just who cares? It's just stuff. Is it just stuff? Or, or when people come to your home, do they feel uncomfortable the whole time? Like they're walking around a museum and, 
and we, we don't, we're not really sure how to act or behave. We can't be comfortable. That's not hospitality. I'm going to tell you, we, we like our stuff, but our stuff is not as important as people. They're not as important as people. The reason why she doesn't care if something gets broken, because it's just stuff, and we want them to come back. And if somebody comes into your home, and the whole time you're worried about them, oh, don't touch this, don't touch that, oh, don't, don't go in that room, don't go over here. I get it. There needs to be boundaries. There needs to be limits. But what you don't want to do is make someone feel claustrophobic in your home to where they can't even enjoy the hospitality. Be hospitable. Help people feel comfortable. Serve them. It's not about us. It's not about us. And I'll tell you, the blessing that Martha robbed herself from was the blessing of giving. See, Jesus said that is more blessed to give than to receive. Do we really believe that? I think that challenges our mindset. We like to get stuff, right? Sometimes we struggle to give. But when you talk about hospitality and service, it's not about what you get. And I want to look at the Apostle Paul for a moment. This has easily become one of my favorite passages from the entire New Testament because I, I believe it displays the heart of Christ in Paul's words when he said this, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love, the less I'm loved. And I want to break this down into three parts. So first, I want you to know what this passage, notice what this passage is about. It's about spending and being spent. And those two words are, are very common words for us to use. And you think about spending something, it means I'm giving you something that I possess. That's what the word spend means. I'm investing that. But it's the words be spent that catches my attention. Because if you look that up, it means to drain the entire account. So let's understand what he's saying. I'm going to give you everything I've got. And I'm also going to do that very gladly. Very gladly. You ever heard somebody say you can't pour from an empty cup? That's a worldly saying. I want you to know that's not biblical. Number one, I don't know what the cup represents. I mean, we're not vessels full of, full of contents. It's, but it's a way for us to say, I just don't know if I can give anymore. I'm tired. I don't feel good. You can't pour from it. I need to recharge. I get it. We need to recharge. But we use that as an excuse sometimes not to serve because we're looking inward. Here's what Paul said. I'm going to give you everything I've got. And I'm going to do that with gladness. And here's why. Because it's about you and your soul and it has nothing to do with me or me getting something in return. Because he said, I will love you more abundantly even though you don't love me back. And that's hard. To continue to give and to serve people when they give us nothing in return, that is Jesus Christ. That's Christianity. It's not about the pats on the back. It's not about the praise that people give us for the service we do. It's not about getting a thank you card. It's about serving and giving and having no other motive. Martha had a chance to serve Jesus in her home. But she allowed her frustration that was based on her wrong perspective to rob her of the blessing of service and giving. And so Jesus says to her, you are worried and troubled. And I want you to notice this. She, asked, she said to Jesus, Lord, do you not care? Here's what Jesus says. You are worried and troubled. He cared. He saw her. He knew what she was going through. It's not like he was completely oblivious of the fact that she was frustrated. But you know what she wanted? 
She wanted him, and this is a phrase we become common, commonly accustomed to, she wanted him to validate her feelings. Tell me I'm right, and then correct the problem. And he would not do that. You know why? Because her feelings were based on a lie. She thought her sister was being lazy, and Jesus didn't care. Neither one of those things were true. So he doesn't validate her feelings, but he does acknowledge, I understand, and I care. I do care. But you need to understand, you're, you, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and this is the biggest part of this story right here. So we talked about a lot of things up to this point, but this is the biggest part of the story that we're going to focus on for the rest of our time. It was the many things that were the problem. And he says about her, it says to her that one thing is needed, and that's what Mary chose. She chose the good part. She chose the thing that will never be taken away from her. And I want to ask you, what is that one thing? What is the one thing that's needed? And I want to ask you another question. I've got lots of questions, and I'm not looking for verbal response, but I'm just trying to get you to think a little bit. What's the one thing that you need in your life above all others? I want you to think about this. What if Jesus had walked, uh, uh, not walked, but said to Mary, Mary, Martha's right, get up, go help your sister. What's happened? I'll tell you what's happened. Is Martha gets her way, but she robs her sister of the one thing that's needed, the eternal thing that'll never be taken away from her to give her relief about the things that really don't matter. She, she thought Mary was being selfish, but it was Martha who was being selfish. She was willing to rob her sister of the blessing of what she was gaining from Jesus. And that is the good part. That is the thing that's needed. And that will never be taken away. All this other stuff that she's worried about, that is momentary. It's carnal. It's temporal. But there's one thing we need. One thing that we need in life. And I'll tell you why Mary chose that good part. It's because she was hungry. Are you hungry? You say, I'm hungry. <laughs> it's getting close to lunchtime. Are you hungry for the Word of God? Are you hungry for the things that are from Jesus Christ? Because Mary was hungry, and while Martha may have been feeding people, what Martha didn't realize is she needed to be fed. And see, that's where Mary's desire was. It was for the things that pertain to the kingdom of God. It was for the things that are according to righteousness. And I want to notice 1 Peter chapter 2 and 2 as we think about hunger for a moment. Peter says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. So let's not get confused here. Sometimes we use this, or the Bible uses this analogy of milk and meat. And the meat, the meat is the more meaty things of the word. That is the more mature things of the word that you really need maturity in order to discern. That's not the point he's making. He's not saying desire the milk of the word in that way. Here's what he's saying. What does a baby desire? Milk. He's saying be like a baby in the respect of babies cry for milk. They desire milk. It's the one thing they want. So be like that. Desire the word of God. I want to ask you, do you desire the Word of God like a baby desires milk? And maybe you say, well, I want to. I'd like to. But no, I don't. No, I don't. 
I want you to meet Lasher. This is a calf that was born a few years ago. This calf belonged to Franklin McDonough. They named it Lasher because it had these big, giant eyelashes. Uh, Lasher was born when we had that Arctic blast several years ago. We all probably remember that, especially you farmers and ranchers. We had negative 33 wind chills. And uh, we were driving down Hobart Street, which is our main road, and Franklin pulled up next to me at a stoplight, and he said, hey, uh, could you go out to the house with me? I said, sure, what's going on? He said, well, Monty Paul's in the back. He's holding a calf. He said, he said, we've already lost several, and he said, we're afraid we're going to lose this one if we don't do something. So we follow him out to the house, and we get in the garage, and we take these two pallets and make this little makeshift you know, corral inside the corner of the garage and put a heat lamp out there, put some hay down. But the most important thing at this moment is we've got to get some warm milk, colostrum, in that calf's belly. And it's cold, and it's distressed, and it doesn't want to eat. It does not want to eat. And I'm watching him try several things. He's got this calf in a headlock, and he's got its mouth pried open, and he's squirting milk at the back of, the mouth, back of its mouth. And I watched my brother, and if y'all know Franklin, he's a big guy, laying down on the ground with this calf, in desperation, trying to get it to eat. And he said something that I'll never forget. He looked at that calf and he said, I can't make you want it. But you've got to taste it. They just wouldn't taste it. What did Peter say? As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. You know why some people don't desire the milk of the word? Because they won't eat it. They won't taste it. There's been times already this week that I've looked at food and thought, I am not hungry. And then I take a bite and I go, oh, that's good. <laughs> and all of a sudden I'm eating a whole plate of food. I'm hungry. And that's the way we are. We taste something, we experience the flavor, endorphins start running in our mind, and we develop that hunger. And I'm just telling you that to, the, to say this. You may not desire it now, but at this point, you've got to be disciplined and eat it anyway and taste it. And the more you taste it, the more you're going to develop that desire for it because you're going to taste that God is good, that His Word is good, that we grow and we're strengthened and we're blessed by that Word. So eat it. You've got to eat it. And I want to ask you, what are you eating? What do you eat every day? And I don't mean food. I don't mean food. I mean, what are we putting our attention on every single day? Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8 says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung in order that I may win or gain Christ. Do you make sacrifices because of how much you long to know Jesus Christ? I'll tell you what's sad is sometimes we will esteem the things that really are meaningless as having greater value than we do Jesus Christ. And you know what we do? We deny that. We say, I'll never do that. I would never do that. But actions speak louder than words. And I'll tell you, whatever you put your attention on, that tells you what you really believe is valuable. Whatever you put your attention on. And so what you eat is important. 
Because I will tell you, you will have to make sacrifices if you want to know Jesus. Paul made sacrifices. He lost relationships. He denied himself of the status that he had gained through a life of education. Being a Pharisee and knowing the law, he, he, he gave up his status in Israel. He said, those things are dung. They used to be important to him. He said, they're dung. That's a, that's a strong word, dung. Excrement. Feces. That's, that's a strong word he's using. It's meaningless, right? You're not going to pay for that. I get it. You've got some people who may use manure for fertilizer. Don't miss the point. Dung is worthless. He's saying, that's how I have to look at those things. If they're causing me to go further away from Jesus, if they're keeping me from knowing Jesus, I'm going to get rid of those things because they're worthless in my life. They stink. They're worthless. Because I want to know Jesus. And that's the one thing you need. And this is a very simple passage, but very powerful passage. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Set your mind. What's that mean, set your mind? It means set your attention on things that are spiritual, things that are from heaven. You know, the eyes are a very intriguing part of our body, very, very fascinating. And, and I wish I understood everything that, that an optometrist understood. I don't. I'm just going to tell you some basic things about your eyes, things you already know. There's what's called our focal point, and everything within that focal point is in high resolution. It's very clear. Everything's very concise. It's where we see all the details of something. And then right outside of that is our periphery, and as our periphery expands, it gets a little bit less defined, if you will. You say, what, what are we talking about? Stick, stay with me for a moment. Now, I know I'm going to look funny, but I'm going to keep my arms up for a minute. My, my peripheral vision used to be about 180. I remember that when I played basketball. It's not that good anymore, but I can look straight ahead and I can move my hands. I can still see my hands are moving. But if you said, how many spots do you have on your hands? Well, number one, I'm a redhead, so that's going to take a minute. But out here, I don't know. It's in my periphery. I mean, I, I know their hands, right? I see they're moving. But those details, those, those, those don't happen here. They happen here. Now, what's my point of all this? A lot of times, God is here. He's in the periphery. We see him. We know he's there. But he's here, and the world is here. And how do you know that? How do you know where God is? And I ask you again, what is it that you eat every day? I'm going to meddle a little bit. But again, I'm going to challenge you. If all you eat all day long is Fox News and CNN, the world is here, God is here. You know how I know that? Because I ate a steady diet of that junk for several months. And every time I would talk with my neighbors, you know what we talked about? Politics. And I get riled up and passionate about it. You know what I wasn't talking about? Jesus Christ. You know why? Because the world was here. God was here. It's March Madness right now. I've been watching some basketball games. I've got a, a bracket. I want to ask you, is March Madness here or here? How do you know? What do you eat? That'll tell you. You know what Jesus said? 
When something goes into the heart, it comes right back out. See, that's what Mary and Martha is really about. This is not just a story about what happened in a house or in a kitchen. It's about life. It's about desire. It's about where your heart is, where your mind is. And I want you to know what God wants from you most is your attention. Because if he's got your attention, he's got all of you. You're never going to love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength if he doesn't have your attention. we got to stay focused on these things. Focused on God. Focused on the spiritual. And not get sucked into this worldly mindset of I've got to do this and I need to be a part of this. And I've got to be involved in this. No, what you need to do is keep your heart centered on Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then I'll tell you the anxiety changes, but you know, sometimes there's other things here that cause God to be here. Luke chapter 8 and verse 14. Now the one that fell among thorns are those who when they have heard go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. Cares. Cares of this life. There's a lot of cares in this life. And, and I don't believe the Bible condemns caring about this life. We need to care about certain things. If you don't care about your business, your business will go under. You've got to care about those things. There's things you need to be concerned about. But the problem is sometimes when we care about those so much, we put God here and then we're choked. You've been choked. I remember when I was a kid, we were out swimming at an apartment complex and a girl held me under the water for about 30 seconds. I thought I was going to die. I never hit a girl, but I nearly did that day. Well, I've hit my sister. That's, I guess that's not total truth. I was scared. Felt powerless. You ever been choked? I'm afraid a lot of God's people are choked. You know what they're choked by? Cares. 1 Timothy 6, 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts. Now listen, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You know what we do? We convince ourselves we're going to find this great business venture and we're going to go and we're going to succeed and we're going to make tons of money and we're going to make tons of money and that money is going to bring about success and comfort and happiness. You know what nobody ever does? They never go, let's go on this business venture and make a bunch of money and I'll tell you what's going to happen, honey. We're going to get rich and here's what's going to happen. It's going to snare us. It's going to trap us. Not only that, we're going to drown ourselves in destruction and perdition. Doesn't that sound great? No, nobody thinks that. And listen, it's not about having money. It's not about whether you are rich or aren't rich. Notice what it comes down to, those who desire to be rich. And we've got all these preachers on TV feeding people's covetousness. Paul says, covetousness is idolatry. And then, and then they stand up there and they say, well, I'll tell you what, if you will follow God, he will make you rich beyond your wildest desire. No, he will not. If you are covetousness, he's not going to feed that desire and destroy you. See, that's the problem. Whatever's here will become our God. And it'll drown you. It'll destroy you. And your greediness will cause you to err from the faith. 
And so we go, well, there's no trouble in that. I'm never going to be rich. But you know what we do in America? We provide a way for people who aren't rich to live like the rich. All you got to do is get a credit card. Have good credit. You can go get whatever you want. You know what that'll do to you? Drown you. Do you believe that this is true? That the borrower is slave to the lender? That's true. I'll tell you how I know that. I had some delinquent credit cards years ago, and I couldn't afford to pay them. And you know what? These people are calling me every day, sometimes calling me at work. And I didn't answer their calls. Because I feared talking to them. You know what? It's, it's not some scary person. It's probably some three-foot-tall guy in a cubicle. But that was a scary thought. They're going to call and ask me about my debt. You know why? Because I knew that it was a master-slave relationship. You borrow money from family, and then you can't pay that. It changes the nature of that relationship, doesn't it? You know why? Because the borrower is slave to the lender. You know what Jesus said? No man can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot, not should not, not some can't, but you cannot serve God and mammon or money. I'll tell you what's tragic to me. I go to churches a lot of times and I meet young, talented men. Young, talented men who could be an incredible blessing for the church. An incredible blessing to their brothers and sisters. And they're working overtime voluntarily to pay for toys and can't ever make it to help serve the community or serve their brothers and sisters. I'll tell you what that is. That's slavery. You don't need those toys to be happy in life. That's not the one thing that's needed. But we get focused in on that. We want to buy bigger and better and faster, shinier. Don't let it become your God. Because it'll distract you from the one thing you really, really, truly need. Lastly, I want to ask you, <clears throat> if we're doing that, are we robbing others of being blessed by the Lord? You say, well, that's a strange question. You know, I don't really think it's that strange of a question because if, if your God is money and toys and wealth and comfort, you're robbing your family. You don't know it, but you're robbing your family. Your kids can be very happy without all the shiny toys that this world has to offer. I'll tell you what, they need God in their life. And they need you, if you're a father, to step up and be a godly man and say, this is the one thing we need. This is where we're going to put our attention. Get behind me and let's go. That's what they need. You'll rob them. And you know what happens? We have somebody that's older, whose kids are grown. And they say, I made a lot of mistakes when I was young. And my kids have no interest in things of the Lord. No interest. It's a cautionary tale. I'm not condemning those folks. God bless them for having the mindset of now we're dedicated, now we're devoted. We need to reach our kids. Yes, you do. Try to reach them. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. I'm just telling you, those of you who are young parents, don't lose your kids because you're eating the wrong thing. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So I'm going to use an analogy as we close today for us to think about and 
I'm going to tell this story, and you may have heard the story, and some of you are probably going to think, you told the story wrong, and that's not true because I've got the floor. <clears throat> so I'm going to tell this story my way. It's just an analogy. There was a professor that walked in one day, and his students were sitting down, and he brought in this big jar, brought in several containers. He had this big glass jar that was see-through, and, and he took three different things, these big rocks, pebbles, and some sand, and he said, today... We're going to fill this jar up. And he said, what do you want to start with? And the kids said, well, let's put the sand in first, because as the kids say, that'll be really satisfying. Let's pour the sand in. So he fills it up full of sand. He says, now what? And they said, what do you mean, now what? The jar is full. He said, okay, what do you want to do? They said, well, I guess we need to put something else in there. He said, what do you want to do yet? And they said, somebody says, oh, put the pebbles in. He says, well, let's wait on that. Let's wait on that. He said, let's put the big rocks in next. They said, okay. So they put the big rocks in next. They fill this jar full, and he says, what now? And one of the kids says, hey, if you put some of those pebbles in there and we shake that jar around, I bet they'll fall down between the cracks. He said, that's good. Let's do that. He says, now what? And they said, put the sand in and shake it around. It'll, it'll, it'll go to the bottom. We can get some sand in there for sure. And then he just stood there for a minute, and they all kind of looked at him puzzled. Because they're wondering the same thing. Why, why would we do that? He said, kids, this is your life. This is your life. And that's true. None of us have an infinite amount of time. We think we do. Many times we think we do. But we don't. And you can only put so much inside the jar that is your life. You only got so much time. And you know, if you put these things in there first... There's no room for these things, and these things are really important. They're very important. But you put this in first, there's no room for this, and there's certainly no room for this. But you know what? If you put this in first, there's still some room for this, but there's no room for this. Very little. But if you put this in first, if you seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness first, there's room for those things. There's room, and we don't have to drown or struggle or feel like we're trying to balance everything. We'll, we'll feel in the balance. The balance will be automatic. You put God first, those things will take their proper place. You know, you probably expect preachers to tell you things like this, don't you? Because they don't understand. They don't understand. I understand. I'll tell you how I understand. When my son was about eight years old, we noticed really quickly this boy was extremely athletic. And I know everybody thinks their kid is a phenom. I'm not saying he was a phenom, but I'm telling you, he had it. And I could see it. And I just asked him, I said, son, you know, we're getting into sports. What do you want to do? He said, well, I like basketball. I'm like, great, because I'm a basketball guy. So I'll tell you what we did. He'd get home from school. We'd go over to the gym. We'd practice footwork. We'd practice fundamentals. We'd practice passing, we'd practice shooting for him, and I'll tell you, this kid, he had it. He'd dribble circles around everybody and score nearly every time. Didn't need a pick. I mean, he was good, he was good at it. Guess who coached? This guy right here. You know what happened when basketball season was over? We had football season. I said, you want to play football? He said, sure, let's do it. Well, he's got a really good arm, so I'm thinking quarterback, but you know what? Now he's 6'3 and about 90 pounds. I'm thinking, this guy's a, he's a, he's a wide receiver. I mean, there's no doubt. And so I'm throwing 45-yard bombs. Yes, that's a bomb for me. 45-yard bombs. 
to this kid who's nine years old, and he's catching it in stride. Bam, I'm like, he has got it. I didn't know the quarterback wouldn't be able to throw the football. So we waste a lot of time on that. Guess who coached? This guy right here. Then baseball season came around. You know the story, don't you? And they saw my dedication to this, and they came to me, and you know what they said? Would you be president of the Little League? I said, sure. Guess who did that job? Toya Jones, my wife. Because I was coaching. We had fun. Met a lot of people. We were drowning. Didn't even know it. It just dominated our whole life. I spent several years teaching my kid how to throw football. You know what I wasn't teaching him about? How to serve Jesus Christ. And I'm going to just be honest with you. Not that I've lied to you, but I'm being honest with you here. I was living vicariously through my son. His successes were my successes. My pride was attached to that. I tried to convince myself it was all about him. But you know what? When he got older and I gave him the option to not play sports, you know what he said? Cool. He doesn't play sports. He's 6'3". He could dunk a basketball now, and he goes up and plays once in a while. He doesn't care about it, and I'm glad. Because it became our God. I'm not against sports. I'm saying be careful that sports isn't here. And God is here. Because it was for us. This is not a game. And it's not just sports. It's dancing. It's education. You can name a hundred things that can distract you from the fact that Jesus is in your presence and he's the one thing you need. And friends, I don't know your heart this morning. But if you need Jesus Christ, you do need Jesus Christ, but if you need him this morning... If you need to put him on in baptism, we want to help you do that. If your life has been chaos, if you've been drowning, if things have just been out of sorts, and you want to rededicate your life to him, we will pray with you and for you and help you in any way that we can. We'll study the Bible with you this week if we can make time to do that. We want to help you in whatever way we can. But this moment, we want to offer the invitation of Jesus Christ. Come forward, have a seat, let us help you as we stand and we sing together.